Christ, I conceal the certainly of a great man, not too close followed by those who claim him, his moral teaching more excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. The wars which had been fought, the burnings and chickenery that religious disputes had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether, on balance, the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point-black declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scraps of heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. I saw that my friend was much more inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway may be. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, Why don't you choose your own conception of God? That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build 
what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. At long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. But soon, but soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and so it had been ever since. How blind I had been. At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. I have not had a drink since. My schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problem and deficiencies. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the almost of my ability. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive but that would be a great measure. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things which were essential requirements. Simply but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of lies who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory, followed by such a a peace and serenity as I have never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountain top blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was suddenly and profound. For a moment I was alarmed and called my friend, the doctor, to ask if I were still sane. He listened and wondered as I talked. 
Finally, he shook his head, saying, Something has happened to you. I don't understand, but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who have such experiences. He knows that they are real. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Fate without works was dead, he said, and how appalling true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then fate will be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. My wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. I was fortunate, for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough goings. We commenced to make many fast friends, and a fellowship had grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere, have seen the most impossible domestic situation righted, fuse and bitterness of all sorts wiped out, I have seen men come out, out, out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one western city and its environs, there are 1,000 of us and our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strange, comic and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seemingly worldliness and levity. But just underneath there is deadly earnestness. Fate has to work 24 hours a day 
in and through us or we perish. Most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Bill W., co-founder of AA, died January 24, 1971. In 2014, approximately 115,000 groups were registered. And there's thousands and thousands thousands of groups that go unregistered that have importune meetings and conversations concerning this way of life. I, for myself, have found this article extremely touching and beautiful in knowing that with God all things are possible. I turn it over even in my ugliest repairs Attempts. I thank God for them. And he says, we're going to get through them some way or another. It's going to be all right. Chapter 1, Bill's Story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudice of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog girl on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is never forgot whether he died by musket or by pot. I'm in this warning which I failed to heed, 22 and a veteran of foreign wars. I went home at last. I fancy myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation? My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises which I would manage with the utmost assurance. I took a night law course and obtained employment an investigator, as an investigator for an insurance company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little, I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of those finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would steal her foreboding by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk. 
Let the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. By the time I had completed the course, I knew that law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all be cut but me to ribbons. I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved a thousand dollars. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and management. But my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions and we off we rode on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success at speculation, so we had a little money. But we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my report to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with profit of several thousands of dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many by the tunes of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and an exhilarating part of my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places of town. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continue all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for my loyalty to my wife, help at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. My wife saw a plot while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to caroom around the exclusive course which had inspired such an awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of a tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his tilt with assumed skepticism. 
Abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of the tape which bore the inscriptions XYZ minus 32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were my friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several millions since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce, fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. We went to live with my friend's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub, gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaken violently. A tumbler full of tumbler full of gin, followed by a half dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I was to eat my breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wise hope. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a Parisian bender, and that chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Shortly afterwards, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It didn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed the drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Sometimes passed, and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I have what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. 
As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight, and all night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My riding, ridding nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin will fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanism for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet there was poison. Cursing myself for a weakling, there were flights from the city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a floor floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking and I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician. And through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called Belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that through those certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics that the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself, I fare forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during, during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would have soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. 
I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stood from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me up a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, 1934, I was off again. Every one became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How I how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be captivated into what I call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of the bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through the night and the next day. My wife at work, I wondered whether I dare hide. A full bottle of gin near the head of our bed, I would need it before the daylight. My musing was interrupting by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was a time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. The door opened, and he stood there, fresh skin and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed the drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, come, what's this all about? I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smiling. He said, I got religion. I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, now I suspect a little cracked about religion. He had that starry eye look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gym will last longer than his preaching. But he did no, did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a single religious idea and a practical program of action, That was two months ago, and the result was evident. It worked. 
he had come to pass his experience along to me if I care to have it. I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours of childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays, way over there on the hillside. There was the proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good nature contempt of some church folk and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, these recollections welled up from the past that made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people are. For that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher of aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work despite contrary indications. I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay it all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. With ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there when they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. Physician, heal thyself. Psychiatrist and surgeon, He had lost his way until he realized that God, not he, was the great healer. I am a physician licensed to practice in a western state. I am also an alcoholic. In two ways, I may be a little different from other alcoholics. First, we all hear at AA meetings about those who have lost everything, those who have been in jail, those who have been in prison, those who have lost their families, those who have lost their income. I never lost any of it. I never was on skid row. I made more money in the last year of my drinking than I made in my whole life. My wife never hinted that she would leave me. Everything that I touched from grammar school on was successful. I was president of my grammar school, student body. I was president of all of my classes in high school. And in my last year, I was president of the student body. I was president of each class in the university and president of that student body. I was voted the man most likely to succeed. The same thing occurred in medical school. I belong to more medical societies and honor societies than men 10 to 20 years my senior. Mine was the skid row of success. The fiscal skid row in any city is miserable. 
the skid row of success is just as miserable. The second way in which perhaps I differ from some other alcoholics is this. Many alcoholics state that they don't particularly like the state of alcohol, but that they like the effect. I loved alcohol. I used to like it to get it on my fingers so I could lick them and get another taste. I had a lot of fun drinking. I enjoyed it immensely. And then one ill-defined day, one day that I can't recall, I stepped across the line that alcoholics know us so well. And from that day on, drinking was miserable. When a few drinks made me feel good before I went over that line, those same drinks now made me rich. In an attempt to get over that feeling, there was a quick onslaught of a greater number of drinks, and then all was lost. Alcohol failed to serve the purpose. On the last day I was drinking, I went up to see a friend who had had a good deal of trouble with alcohol and whose wife had left him a number of times. He had come back, however, and he was on his program. In my stupid way, I went up to see him with the idea in the back of my mind that I would investigate alcoholic phenomena from a medical standpoint. Deep in my heart was the feeling that maybe I could get some help there. This friend gave me a pamphlet, and I took it home and had my wife read it to me. There were two sentences in it that struck me. One said, don't feel that you are a martyr because you stopped drinking. And this hit me between the eyes. The second one said, don't feel that you stopped drinking for anyone other than yourself. And this hit me between the eyes. After my wife had read this to me, I said to her, as I have said many times in desperation, I have to, I have God to do something. She's a good natured soul and said, Ah, I wouldn't worry about it. Probably something will happen. And then we went up the side of the hill where we had a little barbecue area to make the fire for the barbecue. And on the way up, I thought to myself, I'll go back down to the kitchen and refill this drink. And just then, something did happen. The thought came to me. This is the last one. I was well into the second fifth by this time. And as that thought came to me, it was as though someone had reached down and taken a heavy overcoat off my shoulders, for that was the last one. About two days later, I was called by a friend of mine from Nevada City. He's a brother of my wife's closest friends. He said, Earl, and I said, yes. He said, I am an alcoholic. What do I do? I gave him some ideas of what you do, and so I made my first 12-step call before I came ever into the program. The satisfaction I got from giving him a little of what I had read in those pamphlets far surpassed any feeling that I had ever had before in helping patients. So I decided that I will go to my first meeting. I was introduced as a psychiatrist. I belong to the American Psychiatrist Society, but I don't practice psychiatry as such. I am a surgeon. As someone in AA said to me once upon a time, there is something worse than a confused psychiatrist. I will never forget the first meeting that I intended. There were five people present, including me. At the end of the table sat our community butcher. 
At the other side of the table sat one of the carpenters in their community. And at the farther end of the table sat the man who ran the bakery, while on the side sat my friend who was a mechanic. I recall as I walked into that meeting saying to myself, here I am, a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, a fellow of the International College of Surgeons, a diplomat of one of the great specialty boards in the United States, a member of the American Psychiatrist Society, and I have to go to the butcher, the baker, and the carpenter to help me make a man out of me. Something else happened to me. This was such a new thought that I got all sorts of books on higher powers. And I put a Bible on my bedside. And I put a Bible in my car. It is still there. And I put a Bible in my locker at the hospital. And I put a Bible in my desk. And I put a big book in my nice hand. And I put a 12 and 12 tradition in my locker at the hospital. And I got books by Emmett Fox. And I got books by God knows who. And I got to reading all these things. And the first thing you, you know, I was lifted right out of the AA group. And I floated higher and higher, even higher until I was way up on a pink cloud, which is known as Pink Seven. And I felt miserable again. So I thought to myself, I might as yeah, just as well be drunk as feel like this. I went to Clark, the community butcher, and I said, Clark, what is the matter with me? I don't feel right. I have been on this program for three months and I feel terrible. And he said, Earl, why don't you come on over and let me talk to you for a minute? So he got me a cup of coffee and a piece of cake and sat me down and said, why, there's nothing wrong with you. You've been sober for three months, been working hard. You've been doing all right. But then he said, let me say something to you. We have here in this community an organization that helps people and this organization is known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Why don't you join it? I said, huh, what do you think I've been doing? Well, he said, you've been sober, but you've been floating way up on a cloud somewhere. Why don't you go home and get the big book and open it at page 58 and see what it says? So I did. I got the big book and I read it. And this is what it said. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. The word thoroughly rang a bell. And then it went on to say, Half measures avail us nothing. We stood at the turning point. And the last sentence was, We ask his protection and care with complete abandon. Complete abandon? Half measures avail us nothing. Thoroughly follow our path. Completely give themselves to the simple program rang in my swell head. Years earlier, I had gone into psychoanalysis to get relief. <clears throat> I spent five and a half years in psychoanalysis and proceeded to become a drunk. I don't mean that in any sense of a derogatory statement about psycho psychotherapy. It is a very great tool. Not too potent, but a great tool. I would do it again. I tried every gimmick that there was to get some peace of mind, but it was not until I was brought to my alcoholic knees. When I was brought to a group in my own community with the butcher, the baker, the carpenter, and the mechanic, who were able to give me the 12 steps, that I was finally given some semblance of, of an answer to the last half of the first step. 
So after taking the first half of the first step and very genuinely admitting myself to Alcoholics Anonymous, something happened. Then I thought to myself, imagine an alcoholic admitting anything, but I made my admission just the same. The third step said, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. Now they ask us to make a decision. We got to turn the whole business over to some joker we can't even see. And this chokes the alcoholic. Here he is powerless, unmanageable, in the grip of something bigger than he is. And he's got to turn this whole business over to someone else. It fills the alcoholic with rage. We are great people. We can handle anything. And so one gets to thinking to oneself, who is this God? Who is this fellow we are supposed to turn everything over to? What can he do for us that we can't do for ourselves? Well, I don't know who he is, but I got my own idea. For myself, I have an absolute proof of the existence of God. I was sitting in my coffee one time after I had operated on a woman. It had been a long four or five hour operation a large surgical procedure, and she was on her ninth or 10th post-operative day. She was doing fine. She was up and around. And that day, her husband phoned me and said, Doctor, thank you very much for curing my wife. And I thank him for his felicitations. And he hung up. And then I scratched my head and said to myself, What a fantastic thing for a man to say that I cure his wife. Here I am, down in my office behind my desk, and there she is, out at the hospital. I'm not even there, and if I was there, the only thing I could do would be to give her moral support, and yet, he thanked me for curing his wife. I thought to myself, what is curing that woman? Yes, I put on those stitches. The great boss had given me diagnostic and surgical talent, and he had loaned it to me for the use for the rest of my life. It doesn't belong to me. He has loaned it to me, and I did my job. But that ended nine days ago. What healed those tissues that I closed? I didn't. This, to me, is the proof of the existence of somethingness greater than I am. I couldn't practice medicine without this great physician. All I do in a very simple way is to help him cure my patients. Shortly after I was starting to work on the program, I realized I was not a good father. I wasn't a good husband, but oh, I was a good provider. I never robbed my family of anything. I gave them everything except the greatest thing in the world, and that is peace of mind. So I went to my wife and I asked her if there was something that she and I could do to somehow get together. And she turned on her heel and looked me squarely in the eye and said, You don't care about anything about my problem and I couldn't have I could have smacked her but I said to myself grab on to your serenity she left and I sat down and crossed my hands and looked up and said for God's sake help me and then a silly simple thought came to me I didn't know anything about being a father I didn't know how to come home and work weekends like other husbands I didn't know how to entertain my family But I remember that every night after dinner, my wife would get up and do the dishes. Well, I could do the dishes. So I went to her and said, there's only one thing I want in my whole life. And I don't want any commendation. I don't want any credit. I don't want anything from you or 
or Jancy for the rest of your life. Except one thing. And that is the opportunity to do anything you want always. And I would like to start off by doing the dishes. And now I am doing the darn dishes every night. Doctors have been notoriously unsuccessful in helping alcoholics. Notoriously. They have contributed fantastic amounts of time and work to our problem. But they aren't able, it seems, to arrest either your alcoholism or mine. And the clergy have tried hard to help us, but we haven't been helped. And the psychiatrists have had thousands of couches and have put you and me on them many, many times. But it hasn't helped us very much. Though he has tried hard, and we owe the clergy and the doctor and the psychiatrist a deep depth of gratitude, but they haven't helped our alcoholism, except in a few rare instances. But Alcoholics Anonymous has helped. What is this power that AA possesses? This curative power? I don't know what it is. I suppose the doctor might say, this is psychosomatic medicine. I suppose the psychiatrist might say, this is benevolent interpersonal relations. I suppose others would say, this is group psychotherapy. To me, it is God. Greetings. Reading acceptance was the answer. Page 407 of the Alcoholic Anonymous Big Book. Acceptance was the answer. The physician wasn't hooked. He thought he just prescribed drugs medically indicated for his many ailments. Acceptance was his key to liberation. If there ever was anyone who came to AA by mistake, it was I. I just didn't belong here. Never in my wildest moments had it occurred to me that I might like to be an alcoholic. Never once had my mother ever hinted in the idea that when I grew up, I might like to be president of AA. Not only did I not think that being an alcoholic was a good idea, I didn't even feel that I had all that much of a drinking problem. Of course I had problems, all sorts of problems. If you had my problems, you'd drink too, was my feeling. My major problems were mar marital. If you had my wife, you'd drink too. Max and I have been married for 28 years when I ended up in AA. It started out as a good marriage, but it deteriorated over the years as she progressed through the various stages of qualifying for Alnon. At first, she would say, you don't love me. Why don't you admit it? Later, she would say, you don't like me. Why don't you admit it? And as her disease was reaching the terminal stages, she was screaming, you hate me. You hate me. Why don't you admit you hate me? So I admitted it. I remember very well saying, there's only one person in the world whose guts I hate worse than yours, and those are my own. She cried a bit and went to bed. That was the only answer to problems that she had left. I cried a bit and then mixed myself another drink. Today, we don't have to live like that anymore. Max hadn't gotten that way because I didn't care. Indeed, it seemed that I cared too much. I had sent her to four consecutive psychiatrists, and not one of them had gotten me sober. I also sent my kids to psychiatrists. 
I remember one time even the dog had a psychiatric diagnosis. I yelled at Max. What do you mean? The dog just needs more love. You tell that dumb cat and dog doctor he's not a Beverly Hills psychiatrist. All I want to know is why does the dog wet in my lap every time I hold him? Amazing, that dog hasn't wet my pants once since I joined AA and neither have I. <laughs> the harder I work with Max, the sicker she got. So when it ended up at a psycho ward, I wasn't all that surprised, but then when that steel door slammed shut and she was the one that went home, I truly was amazed. <clears throat> I had began to drink in the early years of pharmacy school in order to get to sleep. After going to school all day, working in the family drugstore all evening, and then studying until one or two in the morning, I would not be able to sleep soundly with everything I had but been studying going around in my head. I would be half asleep and half awake in the morning, and in the morning I would be both tired and stupid. Then I found the solution. At the end of study time, I would drink two beers, jump in bed, sleep real fast, and wake up smart. I drank my way through schools and always got honors. And as I went through pharmacy school, graduate school, medical school, internship, residency and a special training and finally went into practice my drinking kept increasing but i thought it was because my responsibilities were increasing if you had my responsibilities if you needed the sleep like i do you'll drink too my drinking took place after work hours i remember finding myself in the middle of the night in the doctor's parking lot at the hospital with one foot in the car and one foot on the ground not knowing which was the lead foot. Finding myself hanging up the telephone, then realizing I had gotten out of bed, answered the phone, turned on the light, and carried on a conversation with a patient. I didn't know whether I had told him to rush to the hospital and I meet him there, or to take two aspirin and call me in the morning. With a problem like that, I couldn't go back to sleep, so I sit up, watch old Wallace Berry movies on an all-night TV, and drink. The longer the drinking continued, the shorter the time the alcohol would keep me asleep. I would have to drink myself back to sleep again and again throughout the night. But I never became a morning drinker. Instead, I had a 5 a.m. shutoff time. If, if it was one minute before 5, I'd drink myself back to sleep. If it was one minute after, I'd stay up and act like a martyr all day. It became progressively harder to get up in the morning until one day I asked myself what I would do for a patient who felt this rotten. The answer came right back. I give him something to pep him up. So I immediately started taking and shooting pep pills. Eventually I was taking 45 milligrams of the long acting Benzedrine and 45 of the short acting just to get out of bed in the morning. It took more through the day to increase the high and more to maintain it. <laughs> when I overshot the mark, I take tranquilizers to level off. The pep pills affected my hearing at times. I couldn't listen fast enough to hear what was uh, I was saying. I think I wonder why I am saying that again. I already said it three times. Still, I couldn't turn my mouth off. For the leveling off process, I just love intravenous Demerol. 
but I found it hard to practice good medicine while shooting morphine. Following an injection, I would have to keep one hand busy scratching my constantly itching nose and would also have sudden uncontrollable urges to vomit. I never got much effect out of the codeine and percodon and the tranquilizers, however. For a period of time, I was injecting penantol intravenously to put myself to sleep. That's the stuff used when the oral surgeon puts the needle in your vein and says, count to 10, and before you get to two, you're asleep. Instant blackout was what it was, and it seemed delightful. I didn't feel I could lie in bed and squirt the stuff in my veins while my kids and wife stood around watching me. So I kept the drug in my bag and the bag in the car and the car in the garage. Luckily, the garage was attached to the house. In the garage, I would put the needle in my vein and then try to figure out exactly how much medication to inject to overcome the pep pills while adding to the sleeping pills while ignoring the tranquilizers in order to get just enough to be able to pull out the needle, jerk the tourniquet, throw it in the car, slam the car down shut, run down the hall, and fall in bed before I fell asleep. It was hard to judge the right amount. One night I had to put myself back to sleep three times and then I finally decided to give it up. But to do so, I had to get all that stuff out of the house and out of my possession. In the end, I had to do the same with alcohol and all pills. I wasn't able to quit chemicals as long as they were in the house. If they were around, I always needed a need for them especially the pills. I never in my life took a tranquilizer, sedative, or pep pill because I was a pill head. I always took it because I had the symptom that only the pill would relieve. Therefore, every pill was medically indicated at that time it was taken. For me, pills don't produce the desire to swallow a pill. They produce the symptom that require that the pill be taken for relief. As a physician and pharmacist who had grown up in the drugstore home, I had a pill for every ill, and I was sick a lot. Today I find I can't work my AA program while taking pills, nor may I even have them around for dire emergencies. Only I can say that, thy will be done, and take a pill. I can't say, I'm powerless over alcohol, but solid alcohol is okay. I can't say, God will restore me to sanity, but until he does, I'll control myself with pills. Giving up alcohol alone was not enough for me. I had to give up all mood and mind-affecting chemicals in order to stay sober and comfortable. On two occasions over weekends, I had decided I would take alcohol absolutely nothing. On each occasion, I had a convulsion on Sunday morning. Both times my reactions was that I had had nothing to drink that night before, so obviously alcohol had nothing to do with it. The neurologist in charge of my case didn't think to ask me whether I drank, and I didn't think to tell him. As a result, he couldn't figure out why I had the convulsions, and he decided to send me to the Mayo Clinic. It seemed to me I needed a consultation first, I happened to be the best diagnostician I knew at that time, and certainly I knew my case better than anyone else. So I sat down with me and went over the facts behind the convulsions, personality changes, daily headaches, 
sense of impending doom, sense of impending insanity. Suddenly, it was obvious to me I had a brain tumor and would die, and everyone would feel sorry for me. The myoclinic seemed like a good place to have my diagnosis confirmed. After nine days of tests at Mayo, I was put in the locked ward of all places. That's when the steel door slammed shut and Max was the one who went home. I didn't like being on the nut ward and I particularly didn't like being forced to ice cookies on Christmas Eve. So I raised enough fuss that they finally agreed to let me sign out against my medical advice. Max accepted the responsibility for me after I had promised never to drink again never to take another pill, never to swear again, and never to talk to girls again. We got on the plane and immediately I had a big fight over whether I, I drank the free booze. Max won. I didn't drink it, but by God, I wouldn't talk or eat either. And that's how Max and I and our two daughters spent Christmas Day eight years ago. When we got home, I got a bottle of scotch and went to bed. The next day, Max called the neurologist and told him about the myopsychiatrist's opinion. He arranged for me to see a local psychiatrist who quickly decided I should be in the mental health unit of our local hospital. The people there insisted on putting me in a ward. When Max and I both knew I ought to have a private room, finally she asked, do you realize he's, one of, he's on the staff of this hospital? And I got my private room. Time went by very, very slowly on my second nut ward. I never could quite get the knack of it and kept asking myself, what's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this? They wanted me to make leather belts of all things. Had I gone to school all those years just to sit and make leather belts? Besides, I couldn't understand the instructions. The girl had explained them to me four times and I was too embarrassed to ask her again. I am pleased to state, however, that I had gone to only a very few AA meetings before I was able to make a really beautiful pair of moccasins and half a wallet. I wore those moccasins every night for the next seven years until they wore out. For my seventh AA birthday, my program-oriented Al-Anon wife had my moccasins bronzed. Now I own perhaps the most costly pair of moccasins anyone has ever seen. And they help me remember where I've been. In the hospital, I hung on the idea I had most of my life that if I could just control the external environment, the internal environment would then become comfortable. Much of my time was spent writing letters, notes, and orders, and lists of things for Max, who was also my office nurse, to do and keep the world running while I was locked up. One has to be pretty sick to do that, and perhaps one has to be even sicker to come back every day for a new list, as she did. Today, we don't have to live that way. Max still works with me and in the office, but we have turned our wills and our lives and our work over the care of God, each with the other as a witness. We took the third step out loud, just as it says in the big book, and life keeps getting simpler and easier as we try to reverse my old ideas by taking care of the internal environment 
via the 12 steps and letting the external environment take care of itself. One day as I sat there in the hospital, my psychiatrist wa walked up behind me and asked, how do you like to talk to the man from AA? My reactions was the same. It was that I already helped all the patients on the ward and I still had plenty of problems of my own without trying to help some drunk from AA. But by the look on the psychiatrist's face, I could tell that it would really make him happy if I agree. So for no better reason than to make him happy, I agreed. Very shortly, I realized that that had been a mistake. When this big clown came bouncing into the room, almost shouting, my name is Frank and I am an alcoholic, ha ha ha. I really felt sorry for him and the only thing in life he had to brag about was the fact that he was an alcoholic it wasn't until later he told me that he was an attorney. Against my better judgment, I went to a meeting with him that night and a strange thing happened, began to happen. The psychiatrist who had generally been ignoring me now became quite interested. Every day he would ask me all kinds of questions about the AA meetings. At first I wondered whether he was an alcoholic himself and was sending me to find out about AA but it quickly became obvious that he had this childish notion instead. If he could get me to go to enough meetings while in the hospital, I would continue to go after he let me out. So for no better reason than to fool him, I asked Frank to take me to a meeting every night. And Frank did set me up for a meeting every night, except Friday when he thought he might have a date with his girlfriend. That's the devil of a way to run an organization, I thought, and I reported Frank to the psychiatrist, who didn't seem perturbed. He just got someone else to take me on Fridays. Eventually, the psychiatrist discharged me from the hospital, and Max and I began going to meetings ourselves. Right from the start, I felt that they weren't doing anything for me, but they were sure helping Max. We sat in the back and talked only to each other. It was precisely a year before I spoke at an AA meeting. Although we enjoyed the laughter in the early days, I heard a lot of things that I thought were stupid. I interpreted sober as meaning drinking but not being drunk. When a big, healthy-looking young fellow stood up there and said, I'm a success today if I don't drink today, I thought, man, I got a thousand things to do today before I can brag about not taking a drink. For God's sake. Of course, I was still drinking at that time. Today, there's absolutely nothing in the world more important to me than my keeping this alcoholic sober. Not taking a drink is by far the most important thing I do each day. It seems that all they talked about at a meeting was drinking, drinking, drinking. This made me thirsty. I wanted to talk about my many big problems I had. Drinking seemed a small one, and I knew that giving up one drink for one day wouldn't really do any good. Finally, after seven months, I decided to try it. To this day, I'm amazed of how many of my problems, most of which had nothing to do with drinking, I believe, have become manageable or have simply disappeared since I quit drinking. I had already given up all the narcotics, most of the pills, and some of the alcohol when I first came to AA. By early July, I had tapered off alcohol completely and I got off pills in the ensuing few months. 
When the compulsion to drink left, it was relatively easy to stay off alcohol. But for some time, it was difficult to keep from taking a pill when I had an appropriate symptom, such as a cough, pain, anxiety, insomnia, a muscle spasm, or an upset stomach. It had gotten progressively easier. Today, I feel I have, I have used up my right to chemical peace of mind. It helped me a great deal to become convinced that alcoholism was a disease, not a moral issue, that I had been drinking as a result of a compulsion, even though I had not been aware of the compulsion at that time, and that sobriety was not a matter of willpower. The people of AA had something that looked much better than what I had, but I was afraid to let go of what I had in order to try something new. There was a certain sense of security in the familiar. At last, acceptance proved to be the key to my drinking problem. After I had been around AA for seven months, tapering off alcohol and pills, not finding the program working very well, I was finally able to say, okay, God, it is true that I, of all people, strange as it may seem, and even though I didn't give my permission, really, really am an alcoholic of source, and it's all right with me. Now what am I going to do about it? When I stopped living in the problem and began living in the answer, the problem went away. From that moment on, I have not had a single compulsion to drink. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, <coughs> some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake until I could accept my alcoholism. I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. He forgot to mention that I was the chief critic. I was always able to see the flaw in every person, every situation, and I was always glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection just as I did. AA and acceptance has taught me that there's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. For years, I was sure that the worst thing that could happen to a nice guy like me would be that I would turn out to be an alcoholic. Today, I find it is the best thing that has ever happened to me. This proves I don't know what's good for me, and if I don't know what's good for me, then I don't know what's good or bad for you or for anyone. So I am better off if I don't give advice, don't figure I know what's best, and just accept life on life's terms, as it is today, especially my own life, as it actually is. Before AA, I judged myself by my intentions while the world was judging me by my actions. Acceptance has been the answer to my marital problems. It is as though AA has given me a new pair of glasses. Max and I have been married now for 35 years prior to our marriage when she was a shy, scrawny adolescent. I was able to see things that others couldn't necessarily see. Things like beauty, charm, gaiety, a gift for being easy to talk to, a sense of humor, and many other fine qualities. It was as if I had, rather than a Midas touch, which turned everything to gold, 
a magnifying mind that magnified whatever it focused on. Over the years, as I thought about Max, her good qualities grew and grew, and we married, and all these qualities became more and more apparent to me, and we were happier and happier. But then as I drank more and more, the alcohol seemed to affect my vision. Instead of continuing to see what was good about my wife, I began to see her defects, and the more I focused my mind on her defects, the more they grew and multiplied. Every defect I pointed out to her became greater and greater. Each time I told her she was a nothing, she receded a little more into nowhere. The more I drank, the more she wilted. Then one day in AA, I was told that I had the lenses in my glasses backwards. The courage to change in the serenity prayer meant not that I should change my marriage, but rather that I should change myself and learn to accept my spouse as she was. AA has given me a new pair of glasses. I can again focus on my wife's good qualities and watch them grow and grow and grow. I can do the same thing with an AA meeting. The more I focus my mind on his defects, late starts, long drunkalog, cigarette smokes, the worse the meeting becomes. But when I try to see what I can add to the meeting rather than what I can get out of it, and when I focus my mind on what's good about it rather than what's wrong with it, the meeting gets getting better and better. When I focus on what's good today, I have a good day. And when I focus on what's bad, I have a bad day. If I focus on a problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. Perhaps... <coughs> Today, Max and I try to communicate with what we feel rather than what we think. We used to argue about our different ideas, but we can't argue about the feelings. I can tell her she ought not to drink a certain way, but I certainly can't take away her right to feel however she does feel. When we deal in feelings, we tend to come to know ourselves and each other much better. It hasn't been easy. It has not been easy to work out this relationship with Max. On the contrary, the hardest place to work this program has been in my own home, with my own children, and finally with Max. It seems I should have learned to love my wife and family first, the newcomer to AA last, but it was the other way around. Eventually, I had to redo each of the 12 steps specifically with Max and mine from the first saying, I am powerless over alcohol, and my home life is unmanageable by me to the 12th step in which I try to think of her as a sick Elanon and treat her with the love I would give a sick AA newcomer. When I do this, we get along fine. Perhaps the best thing of all for me is to remember that my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations of Max and other people are, the lower is my serenity. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectations, but then my rights try to move in, and they too can force my serenity, serenity level down. I have to discard my rights as well as my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity, my emotional sobriety? And when I place more value on my serenity and sobriety than on anything else, I can maintain them at a higher level, at least for the time being. Acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. I never just sit and do nothing while waiting for Him to tell me what to do. 
Rather, I do whatever's in front of me to be done, and I leave the result up to him. However, it turns out, that's God's will for me. I must keep my magic magnifying mind on my acceptance and, and off my expectations, for my serenity is directly proportional to my level of acceptance. When I remember this, I can see I never had it so good. Thank God for AA.